Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today we're reading three pieces of flash fiction. Our first author, Jack Dowd, graduated from London South Bank University with a BA Honours in Creative Writing in 2015. After graduating, he had several short stories published, including one story which won first place in the Metamorphies Science Fiction Short Story Competition. In 2018, he self-published his novel, Empty Nights. Jack writes microfiction, flash fiction, short stories, novels and novellas, and also occasionally turns his hand to plays and screenplays. Although he writes in most genres, he generally finds himself penning thrillers, horrors and mysteries. Blackstar by Jack Dowd. I'm starting on the clam bra now. Amos glanced at the design. The mermaid was perched on a rock, hands removing the shells that covered her breasts, scarlet hair trailing down her back. How are you finding the pain? He caught sight of Jason's wild grin in the reflection of the mirror and thought that, if anything, the man was enjoying it. Clients wouldn't normally volunteer themselves for an eight-hour tattoo session, Yet Jason had seemed insistent on the idea. Amos thought about his client's deposit, allowing him to fast-track the waiting list, and wondered if it would allow him to pay this month's rent. Hot, ain't it? They said on the news that the heatwave's going to get worse. Jason's only response was a grunt. Amos studied Jason's other tattoos, both of beautiful women who Jason had claimed he'd sketched himself. He designed the mermaid in such a position that when he flexed his arm, her lips would pucker into a kiss. Don't mind if I open the door, do you? When Jason failed to reply, Amos lowered his tattoo gun and propped the back door open with a fire extinguisher. As he returned, a bell jingled from the reception area. Amos ignored it, picked up his gun and began to outline the mermaid's elbow. After a moment, the bell sounded again. A voice from the other side of the curtain spoke. Hello? It's the police. Amos swore, lowered the tattoo gun again and peeled off his gloves. My reception's probably nipped outside for a smoke. You stay here, all right, mate? What? How long are you going to be? Not long, he shrugged, surprised that Jason had broken his near silence since the start of the session. I'll be back as soon as I can. Stay still so the ink doesn't run. As the curtain swept back behind him, Amos was certain he heard Jason cursing. Two police officers were waiting at the counter. Amos saw that the first had his hand poised over the bell, while the second was admiring what Amos considered his masterpiece, a framed photograph of a bodybuilder with a crimson dragon emblazoned on his chest. "'Are you the owner, sir?' the officer at the desk asked. "'Um, yeah?' Amos saw that one of the officers had knocked the front doorstep's wedge aside when they entered. The shop door had swung shut, trapping the humid air. "'You shouldn't leave your shop front unsupervised.' I have a receptionist, Amos said, and spied the temp through the shop window, a cigarette dangling between her fingers. She was chatting into a phone, leaning against a lamppost, her back to the shop. Are you aware of the incident that took place in the early hours of this morning, at the other end of the high street? The first officer asked. No. A girl was murdered leaving the nightclub down the road. Innocence. Oh my God. Are you serious? I'm afraid so. We were hoping to have a look at your security camera, outside. Oh, that's been broken for months, Amos said. Keep meaning to have it fixed, but never found the time, you know? The two officers exchanged a disappointed glance. We also have reason to believe, 
the first officer continued, that the victim may have been familiar with your shop. What? You mean she was tattooed here? Her family says so. Her name was Emily Hacking. If we showed you a picture, do you think you would recognise her? I don't know. Depends how long ago she came in. I've, I've been in the shop for three years now. I've tattooed hundreds of people. The officer took out a tablet and loaded an image. A girl in her mid-twenties with dyed red hair and matching lips smiled up at Amos. Judging from the patches of coloured light behind her, Amos guessed the picture had been taken inside a nightclub. Oh, I don't know her. Sorry. She was a student at Mersborough Art College. She had a tattoo of a black star on her left wrist. The police officer swiped the screen and a new image appeared. The photo showed a black star on the inside of the wrist, wrapped in cling film. The skin around the tattoo was still inflamed. Stars are the most common tattoo, and the wrist is one of the most popular body parts. Sorry. I can search the computer if you like, see if I've got a name on record. The police officer nodded, and Amos booted the computer out of standby mode. He spotted the temp grinding the stub of her cigarette into the pavement and made a mental note to call her agency. As he clicked into the database, he noticed the curtain of the studio flickering. The fire door. Sorry, could you pop that doorstop back in place? he asked, as the second officer took a step towards the curtain. The officer obliged. I'll tell you what, the muggings and attacks around here are ridiculous, Amos said as he clicked into the search field. Wasn't some other girl killed last month? Yeah, the first officer said. Is it like a serial killer summit? Our investigation is ongoing, the second officer answered. Amos looked back at the computer screen. Found her. Emily Acking. Oh, I did a tat four months ago, but I've not seen her since. The first officer scribbled in his notebook. I always see the party-goers walking past, Amos continued. But I don't pay her much attention, you know. I'm used to him. Actually, I saw a couple of strange-looking ones yesterday. Innocence was holding a fancy dress event last night, the first officer said. We think Emily went dressed as a mermaid. A, a what? From within the studio, Amos heard the fire door click shut. Our second story is by Niles Reddick, the author of a novel, three collections and a novella. His work has been featured in over 500 publications, including the Saturday Evening Post, PIF, New Reader Fourth, Citroen Review, Right Hand Pointing, Nunham, and Vestal Review. He's a three-time pushcart, a two-time Best Micro nominee, and a two-time Best of the Net nominee. His newest flash fiction collection, If Not For You, has recently been released by Big Table Publishing. Taking Up Serpents by Niles Reddick. Her husband said that if the snakes had been well fed before Sunday service, they likely wouldn't bite as many of the congregation who came to the country church outside Sand Mountain, Alabama. Laura Frances hadn't grown up as part of a holiness church that believed in taking up serpents, and she didn't believe what she figured to be a misinterpretation of biblical text. But Sam had slithered into her life with his hypnotic green eyes and a lumberjack body. Once they married, one of her responsibilities was lifting the mice by their pink tails from their cages and dropping them into the snake aquariums. His responsibility was combing the mountainsides, searching under rocks for copperheads, listening for rattlesnakes, and capturing them in a burlap sack. She didn't mind feeding them. 
but she told Sam she wouldn't take up serpents in or out of church. She perched on a stool and watched one of them slither through the woodchip bedding and swallow the mouse whole, its mouth expanding and then seeing the whole mouse inside the distorted body. Occasionally, when mice weren't in stock, she had to feed baby chicks to the snakes. The fluffy yellow chirpers weren't nearly as easy to watch getting swallowed because Laura Frances knew they had potential to grow and provide eggs. Mice didn't seem to have a purpose that she could distill. Laura Frances sat on the third row in church, far enough away from the front to avoid the gyrating, spirit-filled members who, in their fit of dancing, might drop a snake or lose their grip from where their thumb and pointer finger pinch the triangular head from each side and fling it to the floor or into the up-close audience. When one landed and coiled on the pine pew where she'd been sitting, she stood and rocked back and forth into the aisle to the beat of the music. Laura Frances was a quick study and threw her arms and hands up into the air and danced backwards to the last row until the music stopped and Sam wiped sweat with a white handkerchief he kept in his pocket. Then she took a seat on the back pew and never moved back to the front on successive Sundays. When Sam questioned her over supper one night, she told him, I feed him and that's all I'm going to do. The next week, Sam rattled the cages and told the members, Laura Francis feeds these snakes, and they're getting fatter and happier. Laura Francis didn't know if a snake could be happy, but she knew that Sam was hoping to stave off any questions from church members about her faith, since Laura Francis had moved to the back row and hadn't handled snakes. When Sam was loading cages for church one Sunday, he was bitten. Laura Francis rushed him to the emergency room, but the venom quickly spread through Sam's body, and within two days, he was dead. The congregation gossiped about his faltering faith, and there was a small funeral at the church. One of the members came to get the snakes and the mice and take them to his farm, and Laura Frances listed their land and small house on the mountain for sale. She moved to Huntsville and joined the Episcopal Church, where the only thing she would take up would be the Bible, the hymnal, and the communion wafer and wine chalice. Our third story is by Seth Isle, a young Filipino literary artist living in Manila, Philippines. With Cum Laude, he majored in literature and minored in language. As a student journalist and independent writer, he has published English and Tagalog poems, fiction and non-fiction. Internationally, his works have appeared in India, the United States of America, Canada and Scotland. He also joins writing groups, contests, workshops and attends seminars. Further, he is a freelance writer providing writing services open to all Filipinos. Now he plans to invest in graduate studies on creative writing. A Midnight Call by Seth Isle Age, Sex, Location ASL The information Marissa provides on the first day she and Tyler talk through chats. Oh, she knows it really. It's the thing, anyway. Marissa has heard many stories about Filipinas successfully pursuing American boys through different social media platforms, not to mention dating apps. Back in the pearl of the Orient Seas, she used to hear about this girl who's always on the phone talking to her AFAM, basically a slang term for foreigner. She used to witness other women having these Phil-Am, Filipino-American, relationships. Now they all have something to say about their love stories with Americans. 
American boys love Filipinas. That's what Marissa's seen on TV, radio, and in movies in the Philippines. They like Asians. They love Filipinas. That's the hope for women like Marissa. It's an opportunity to have Phil-Am kids migrate to the US and never suffer again. But for Marissa, it's also love. Those are stories. Marissa's seen on social media how happy and lucky these women are. Now that she's in New York City, fulfilling her dream to be a writer, she finally tries to connect with American boys. Tyler wants to know more about her. She could tell. After hours of chatting, he suddenly calls. This call is one of the trials she's had with a few boys. Prepared, she picks up the phone and hears and feels Tyler's voice. Fresh air in the star-spangled New Yorker midnight. And when she speaks, the man, just like many Americans, hears her Philippine English. So he asks, Ah, uh, yes, Ishan. Marissa confirms. On both ends, silence is all that is heard. He asks for specificities, almost as if it wasn't a question, but a declarative disgust. Well, I'm Filipina and brown, she says, confused. The next tone, felt and heard, is the death of Tyler's call. The sound then reverberates in Marissa's ears, as if they were invalidated and deserving to hear death. Her hands feel suddenly tired, and she puts her cell phone down. She recognises the starry sky and the skyscrapers fashioned with lights. She hears small, lively noises from outside. She knows how awake the city is, even during this hour. She then notices the silence in her dimly lit apartment. Sitting on the couch in her sleepwear, she looks at every corner. She knows. She belongs here. If not to a young man like Tyler. Thank you so much for listening. Our Halloween competition is open till the 1st of September. We're holding a competition to hunt for truly haunting writing. Entries should be prose fiction, non-fiction or poetry and should fit the theme of Halloween. Think ghosts, ghouls and goblins, witches, werewolves and warlocks. The winner and runners-up of our Halloween competition will receive a cash prize and be featured on our podcast each week in October leading up to Halloween. Find out more details of the tricks and treats on offer on our website. There'll be a link in the description. We're just dying to read your submissions. If you want to stay up to date with the goings-on here at Yorick Radio, then you can follow us on social media, sign up to our newsletter, check out our website, and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production. <laughs>